AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for May 3rd, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today, we're joined online by Jim Clausing. Welcome, Jim. Hey, it's good to be back. <laughs> it's good for you to be back. And uh, <laughs> we have here in the uh, in Bedminster here, Matt Kaiser. Welcome, Matt. This is going to be the Matt Kaiser Show. Well, I'll let you guys talk too. <laughs> okay. Well, we, we thank you for that. <laughs> and uh, and also Manny Ortiz. Pleasure. Welcome, Manny. Hopefully by now you guys aren't uh, completely and utterly sick of me because this is my third week in a row. So Third week in a row. Well, we, we certainly welcome you back. And I'm Brian Rexroad, and uh, we'll, I guess, jump right into it with the Matt Kaiser Show. And uh, Matt, you do a little online gaming, I understand. This is true. And uh, perhaps we have a little switch in this strategy between how gaming is, uh, is provided. So tell us a little bit about what pitfalls can happen. Sure, so this was a pretty cool article um, from a blog called Gaffer on Games that I happened to, to, to find out about. Mm -hmm. uh, and I thought it was a really good ins uh, illustration of some of the, the key fundamentals of security when you're dealing with client and server security. Mm -hmm. uh, so Ubisoft just released a game called Tom Clancy's The Division. I haven't played it, I hear it's a lot of fun. But this blog post goes into some of the problems with cheating that have been happening recently mm -hmm. in the game. Now, any good online game, people will try to go out of their way to get an advantage. No exception here with, with The Division. Unfortunately, it seems that the way that The Division was designed actually makes it much easier for cheaters and much harder for the defenders to prevent cheating. Mm. The reason for this is a key flaw in the way that they've designed the client-server model. Anybody who's had a basic course in security will tell you, if you're a server, never trust the client. Mm -hmm. Because the client will provide, if the client's allowed to define certain values of the way that the, the system works, they can get into all sorts of mischief. Yeah, I, I'm actually going to interrupt you for a second. For I don't it. think the client should trust the server either. <laughs> that may be true. In, okay. in a system where you've got some sort of, of transactional system, right. say, I, I like to use the example of an online store. If I'm able to go to your online store and tell you, by the way, I'd like to buy one of these books, mm -hmm. and I'd like to pay $1 for it. If I, if I provide that value to you and you trust it, Mm -hmm. Your system will say, okay, let's go ahead with a transaction, one book, one dollar. Mm -hmm. That's not the way it's supposed to work. The server is supposed to say, wait a second, I know what the price is. You don't get to set that for me. And that prevents you from taking advantage of the system. Mm -hmm. Same thing is happening here. The, the, the client software is sending values like how many rounds of ammo does the character mm -hmm. have? How much health does this character have? How much damage does this particular gun do? And the server has trusted them and saying, fantastic, you've fired one pistol, you've done 10,000 points of damage, and you're not taking any damage because you're, for some reason, invincible. And that's, that's causing a lot of grief among players who want to be able to play a game that has rules that are fair. Mm -hmm. um, so, so you were explaining earlier that this is in contrast to how a lot of gaming has done, been absolutely. done previously. So how is it different? Typically, according to Gaffron Games, who is a developer, the typical way you do it is you provide your inputs. You know, your character mm -hmm. goes forward. You press the trigger on the gun. You use a health pack. You provide that input to the server, and the server keeps state of everything going on inside the game. It mm -hmm. is the one version of the truth that matters. Mm -hmm. Your local game can say, okay, well, I'll play the animation for you using a health pack, but until the server tells me that you've got full health again, it doesn't matter. So 
The right way to do it is to have one version of the truth and not multiple conflicting ones, and never to let the client define what is the truth in the mm -hmm. game. So this goes for gaming, this goes for online banking, this goes for shopping online, the same sorts of things apply. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was a pretty interesting illustration of this yeah. in a way that some people who, if they don't want to get so completely technical with you know, how this, you know, maybe how e-commerce works, maybe that's boring for them. Gaming, I think, is a little more exciting and understandable for people who understand like, mm -hmm. I'd like to play a game that's fair, and this is why this is not the right way to build this game. And, and this is an interesting one, in my opinion, because it's not one you can throw authentication and encryption at mm -hmm. and solve the problem. This is really an inherent who-do-you-trust situation. Absolutely. And, and it doesn't matter if you understand who you're talking to or even if you trust the, the, the instance. Mm -hmm. It has to do with being able to control what's actually going on within that channel. Some people have suggested maybe that the server should be doing more checks on what's coming back to them, say, mm -hmm. that's ridiculous, your pistol doesn't do a million points of damage. But that's really more of a patch instead of a complete fix to the system. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, it sounds like they may not be able to fix this without a, a complete code rewrite of both the client and the mm -hmm. server. Right. So. Well, isn't this kind of like an injection attack on steroids? Hmm. I mean, if you look at websites that don't do balance checking, allow additional parameters, or allow, allow manipulation of the parameters and don't do checks against that, it's the same kind of thing. So It is the same kind of thing if that's the model that you're operating within <laughs> where you're allowed to provide these values. And mm -hmm. I, think, I think there's a whole paradigm shift here where the user should not be able to provide these values at all. They should be able to say, I went forward for a second. And that's about as much as they should be able to say without the game mm -hmm. saying, you don't get to say that. Yeah. Either that or there needs to be perhaps, and I, I, I'm, this is just hypothetically speaking, some way to have a trusted distributed component that is walled off from the, uh, from, you know, the actors that are behind it. I mean, it would be, I, I, and I presume this was sort of the motivation behind this, rather than having lots of big honking, centralized servers to be able to distribute that processing so that it scales better to the number of players that are participating in it. Okay. And you'd like to have that, I mean, that's a good computing thing <laughs> from a computing strategy point of view, but the security part, obviously, well, is a challenge. One thing I'll say is that the console versions of the game have not seen this level of cheating. Intrinsically, because making modifications to memory on a console is, has a much higher uh, barrier to entry. You know, somebody can mm -hmm. download some software and run it at the same time they're running the division client and start messing with memories and values in memory. Doing it with a console is a little more expensive if it is even possible. And um, yeah, so there's there's a certain trusted component that I would say, if if not by design, you know, de facto within the console version of the game, that prevents some of these things from happening. Mm -hmm. All right, very good. All right, Manny, let's go to you and uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, Windows has done, in my opinion, a great job. They, they basically invented the automated patch updates. I think that's going to be, uh, that's been a, actually a really significant improvement. Right. And they've been getting much more active in sort of defense posture that is identifying threat actors and things. So it sounds like you have a story here that's related. <clears throat> this story involves a, um basically a team at Microsoft, and unfortunately, I did not realize that this team actually existed, um, but they call themselves the Microsoft Window, Windows Defender Advanced Threat Hunting Team. Yes, that one. <laughs> it rolls off the um, and, and their main mission is to basically go look at and try to identify these 
spe very specific hacking groups. Mm -hmm. This team obviously has been around for a while, um, and uh, they stumbled upon, so this story is actually talking about a, a particular group that they stumbled on. They've called them Platinum. This Platinum group seems to have been around since at least 2009. They predominantly target areas in Asia. In particular, Malaysia and Indonesia seem to be at the top of their list. They seem to be a government-sponsored group just because of the complexity of the different tools that they use and the techniques that they use, some of the, the zero days that they use, pretty much because of the money involved in putting some of this stuff together. Mm -hmm. um, it looks like since 2009, they're tracking about, they, they usually pop their heads up about twice a year. So, you know, they're, again, very specific, and that's really what sort of the point here. Mm -hmm. The story that I read, actually, there's a, there's a link to an actual, like, a 32-page um, document that goes into a lot of detail about what they did and how they hunted down this particular group, which, by the way, skipping a little bit to the, to the end here, they still don't know who this group is. Mm -hmm. they're, they're still sort of a mystery. They have some more clues as to what they're doing. The, pa the, the paper actually does go into some of the indicators that they've been able to pull out. So there is some good information that you can pull out of it. And you know, going some, through some of the detail um, is sort of interesting to read through. Mm -hmm. um, so again, they, they seem to use a lot of uh, spear phishing, um, uh, self-deleting malware, customized malware to evade AV, they use zero days, um, and again, whether they are finding the zero days or they're paying for those zero days, not exactly sure yet, but, but it seems like they are using that. Um, and the, the interesting one is that they use malware that limits their activity to working hours to hide in the, in the noise. Mm -hmm. In this particular one, what ended up happening was that as, as they're trying to figure out who this team is, the one thing that I think gave them the clue that actually started to, they started to be able to dig into this was um, as part of their, you know, their forensic process of looking through, they were pulling some files back of interest. Mm -hmm. um, they were calling them high entropy files that they were looking at. There was a string that they, they found that looked of interest and that was sort of the pivotal point that gave them sort of the, oh, there's actually something going on here. Mm. So again, this one has to do with this Microsoft hot patching. So what they found was that the, in Windows Server 2003 Service Pack 1, this whole concept of hot patching was introduced. This hot patching, basically what it allows you to do is basically allows you to install updates on, in this case, a server without having to reboot the machine, which comes in real handy, obviously, when you're a server admin and you don't have to take everything down to install a patch. Mm -hmm. So back in 2003, it's, it, uh, Microsoft says that they released about 10 of these patches that use this new hot patching technology um, or this process. And then this process allows you to basically change core system files uh, or core system services without a reboot. Mm -hmm. There's some technical stuff that I didn't really get into, but there was some stuff that they were doing where, where some of the stuff that they were changing was actually done in memory. So some of the, some of the DLL work that they were doing is actually done in memory, the, mm -hmm. the changing out. And so basically, in, in the end, what it allows them to do, using this, this hot patching, was allowed them to inject code um, to avoid detection. That's when they figured out that that's, that's exactly what they were using this in this case. This hot patching, unfortunately, this hot patching um, process 
is also available in some of Microsoft's later products, going from Windows Server 2003 all the way through Server 2008, Revision 2, uh, Vista, and Windows 7. In Windows 8 and Windows 10, that hop patching is no longer, no longer a problem and issue. It goes into quite a bit of detail as to like sort of what this group does um, what, what they're, they're, and they're typically after, and again, another indicator of why they think it's government um, sourced, um, they're not, they don't go after any kind of money, they're going after right. information. Right. So, for further information, definitely read through this. There's mm -hmm. some indicators that you could use to you know, figure out, obviously, if you're seeing any of this stuff. Obviously, it's very mm -hmm. specific, so the chances of you actually seeing this stuff is probably low, but they're there. Mm. So are there any indicators of uh, what types of organizations they were targeting in these countries? Um, government, industry? Yeah, they, were they were definitely targeting government. Targeting government. Yep. So that yep. really suggests that perhaps it was a government organization, yep. or at least somebody affiliated with a government organization. Yep. I think the other aspect of this, perhaps, um, are there recommendations on how to protect yourself against this sort of thing, like so blocking they, the hotfix <clears throat> capability? Right. So they do go over, the, the, the paper actually goes through, and they give you about like eight or 10 different bullets for protecting against this. Mm -hmm. A lot of them, I think, are a lot of the things that we've gone over on the show, you know, making sure that your patches are done up to date. Mm -hmm. um, and they go through a whole list of stuff. But a lot of them are pretty sort of generic, you know, just keep mm -hmm. your, you know, keep, the, keep on top of certain things to make mm -hmm. sure that you've, you've had this, this stuff closed okay. down. Um, again, the sophistication in this in this sense is makes it kind of hard yeah. to protect against, but you These can folks, do those things to try to limit that right. exposure. These folks, I mean, the, this Platinum Group obviously understands Windows and yes. how to manipulate it in Very their favor. Well. Yeah, and, it um, seems. And so it, it's a matter of the folks that are running. Windows-based servers, right. making sure they're on top of these things and, and protecting yep. themselves. So, yep. and uh, obviously, you can't just rely on any virus. In fact, it's questionable about whether any virus is really going to be effective against a server platform at all. And perhaps there are other methods. I think uh, one that's been uh, recommended is more of a whitelisting approach to things that right. you probably really should understand what's running on your servers, and it should be pretty stable. And yep. uh, once you've kind of stabilized that, you should be able to flag things that aren't in that <laughs> in that realm, right. right? Yep. So, yep. All right, very good. Um, we'll want to be paying attention. You know, it, it looked like a very much a classic uh, sort of advanced attacker activities. The self-deleting malware is, uh, you know, sort of get in, do your thing, get out, leave no tracks, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yep. I say that in mountain biking. Go in, leave no tracks. Right. <laughs> Take only pictures, leave That's only footprints. Like that. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, hiking as well. Hiking, yeah. <laughs> all right, so uh, Matt, let's go back to you here. After all, it is the, uh, the Matt Kaiser Show today. <laughs> I'm not going to let you go on that one. So uh, Paul Vixie wrote an article, and um, I, I found this to be intriguing, but uh, go ahead and introduce it, and sure. we'll chat about it a little so bit. So he wrote an article. It's up on uh, the Farsight Security blog. It's called Magical Thinking in Security. Um, the first part of the article talks about the kill chain, the cyber kill chain, which is Lockheed mm -hmm. Martin's creation, and uh, the Gardner 12-step model, uh, which was new to me, actually. Mm -hmm. And I think he was, his point was to point out certain deficiencies in this, primarily that they're both based on military models. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the kill chain, there is a, a non-cyber kill chain, which came first. I'm not sure about the Gartner one. That might be referring to something like the OODA loop based on the steps within it, but mm -hmm. I digress. 
his take on it is that these are both military models, which are used primarily for uh, strategic decisions uh, during a battle or across the course of a war. And he contrasts that with cybersecurity, which is not a battle, mm -hmm. not even a war. It's more of a way of life and a way of, of being. Mm -hmm. And that while it's useful to have a model that allows you to put structure around the chaos that you're seeing, it, not, it doesn't necessarily completely give you uh, a plan of action, as well as if you follow the model to the T. Um, this is a public model, and any, mm -hmm. any attacker worth their salt will take a look at your model and say, here's where I can poke holes in it, and if you're not doing certain things that don't fall into the model, these are the things that I'm going to yeah. do. That's possible. So let's, uh, let's break this down a little bit, because I, 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 I think what I'm going to say here really kind of reinforces, if I understand where he's going with this, is if you look at, and, and I've had some discussion with some military groups on these kinds of topics, and if you look at you know, a typical military threat scenario, it's a situation where you kind of know who your enemy is. Mm -hmm. You know who you need to be worried about, and you kind of know what their capabilities are. You know kind of how much fit military infrastructure they have, you know how many aircraft carriers they have, mm -hmm. you know how many bombs they may have in their inventory, where they have their missiles and those kinds of things. And so you can kind of prepare yourself. It's, it's not as if they just pop up right away. Whereas I think in the cybersecurity world, it's, well, there's that country, there's that group, there's that, and you know, they're, they're not just a handful or even a hundred, mm -hmm. it's thousands of things. And so the notion of understanding your threat environment on one hand is still valuable in my opinion, but to have a full understanding, the full repertoire of, of threats, first of all, they're not as physically mm -hmm. apparent. You can't, you know, take pictures and know what their capabilities are. You're dependent on information that's coming from other organizations having been victims to understand what the threats are, what their capabilities are, and perhaps how you could protect yourself. But you really never know what their next capability is. So it, perhaps I've gone into this too far, but I think that's really kind of what he's trying to say I, here. I would tend to agree, and I think he makes one more good point in that vein is that uh, in a military operation, sometimes you have the ability to choose when and where to engage the enemy. Mm -hmm. And in cybersecurity, you, you really don't. It comes to you, and you're mostly in a reaction mode. And you don't have too far. You can't run very far. You, yes, you cannot <laughs> really retreat. Um, but the other, the other point, which I also think was very important in this, is he, he's come up with, I hesitate to call it a formula, because it's a very much a shorthand for um, what he's trying to express. But the idea is that Computer systems, by their nature, are complex. And I think we talked about mm -hmm. this before the show, where yeah. if you start down at the, the transistor level and go you know, from gates all the way up, every single step of that is, is significantly complex. And then you come at, at some point at the top with a system that does something like IDS, and the number of layers of what that's actually doing are mm -hmm. more than most human beings can even fathom, and mm -hmm. certainly not keep track of in their heads. So anytime you add a system to another system, you know, you add new IDS, you add new shiny box, you're adding complexity. Right. And he's got a ratio of how much of that complexity do you actually know about, understand, and be able to take action with compared to all the complexity total in your network. Mm -hmm. And he says that anytime you're buying a box, you're adding complexity, you're not necessarily adding the equivalent amount of understanding. So this fraction becomes you've got you know, you're, you're growing the total of things you don't understand faster mm -hmm. than you're growing the total of things that you do understand. Right. And that by itself is the wrong way to approach the problem. Mm -hmm. So at the end, I think he makes the statement, any, any decrease in complexity will improve the local understanding level. 
So you may be better off instead of spending your budget this year on buying a shiny new box, which will add complexity and not necessarily add understanding, to take systems you don't understand or that are no longer necessary, you know enough about that you can say, we don't need this on our network. Taking those out of the equation may actually be a better way to reach that equilibrium. Absolutely true. Yeah, so um, I, I, there are a few things uh, uh, as a part of this. I think one of the things is to try to build abstractions. The whole idea of you know starting from transistors, transistors building up, it's actually, first you have to build a transistor, right? <laughs> but they, taken from those transistors, building up circuits, building up components, building up, you know, uh, computers, you know, and then overlaying software with an operating system and the components, they're all layers of abstraction that are piled on top of each other. And it's actually, you know, it's the whole notion of those abstractions is to make it so that you can understand what you're working in. I think where some of the things kind of break down is one is that there are flaws in those abstractions. Yep. That is, they don't, they're not implemented perfectly. And uh, it kind of draws me back to, you know, I, I, I was trained initially as an engineer. You know, when you're designing a chip, there are millions and millions of dollars that go into designing a chip. You know, from the building it up and the manufacturing a part, part of it, you don't want to get it wrong. Once you get that thing out to press, if it's wrong, you've lost millions. And so there was a, a significant amount of discipline in getting it right the first time. A lot of effort goes into designing it, testing it, verifying everything's right, the timing, the layout, the, you know, check and check again. Whereas in systems as we tend to build them today, it's, oh, take this and plug it into that and then communicate with this and add that over there. And then, you know, and it morphs over time, it becomes more and more complex. And I think it's part of that is really to kind of back off and get into some stronger discipline around designing the system, how it's supposed to work. And you know, one of my pet peeves is the notion of a security policy. We always start out at the beginning of a system life cycle with here's the security policy. It allows this thing to happen and that thing to happen, but none of those other things to happen until the exceptions start coming in. And it is almost impossible to take a system and revisit it. And so, I mean, this is, this is a crazy notion, but really it, it, it's almost a, uh, a desirable thing to say, you know what, this system's, you know, at the end of its life cycle, toss it, let's start completely new and then define the policy. This is, you know, based on what you've learned, <laughs> define the policy, start again. Very expensive proposition, perhaps uh, a good one in the end. It's a, I think it's a scary proposition, is what it is. It's, oh yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, I think absolutely. most people that co that whole concept would be extremely foreign to them. What do you mean, remove stuff? Mm -hmm. Like <clears throat> because this stuff has been working for a decade. And exactly. It, it's always worked this way, and trying yes. to yeah. Security has always been you know like most people think security is better when you when you layer it you know put more and more layers on top mm -hmm. of it right. So pulling stuff out. I, I think his point was not necessarily taking your layers of shiny boxes out. Right. Which I, I think his point is, don't go first to buy more shiny boxes, but rather take a look at what's behind those right. and, and see if you can clear some of that. Now, to be fair, some of those shiny boxes you're putting in have their own vulnerabilities. And it's that complexity of all of these different systems that lends itself to these. So, sure, you're putting in a new X appliance, but you're also whatever, whatever security flaws that thing has that you don't know about yet, you're also adding those to the network. So. Well, at the very least, retire stuff you don't want or don't need. <laughs> I, I, I agree 100% right. with that. 
Absolutely. Jim, you've been quiet. What are your thoughts? I just keep thinking about how we keep, you know, we always hear about these, you know, especially um, in the manufacturing or in the industrial controls kinds of settings where we've got systems that have been in there for, you know, tens of years and, you know, nobody knows how they work anymore, if anybody ever did. And, you know, trying to get those out and replace them with something that maybe somebody does understand again is is always a hard problem. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I think you kind of bring up a point that's a, that there are two sides to that story. That a lot of the systems are quite a bit simpler, uh, perhaps not prepared for the types of security issues that uh, we have to deal with today, but at least the, the, uh, the notion was to partition it off so that it is relatively simple, not, you know, interfered with significantly by the outside world. A lot of that's probably been perturbed over time. And, uh, but to your point, uh, if you don't understand what it is or how it works, it's probably not a good thing. One more thing to add to that is, if you have the ability to increase understanding just by itself, train your people. Mm-hmm. Teach them how your IDS works. Teach them whatever systems that you've got so they can hopefully spot the problems before they become a problem. Absolutely. All right. Very good. So, uh, Jim, let's go to you. And um, uh, let's talk a little bit about NTP. You know, that's been getting a lot of uh, attention over the last, I guess, a couple of years now. And um, it doesn't seem to have gone away. So tell us what's up. Yeah. And it's probably not going to go away. Um, in in our, our daily work, we like to have good uniform time so we can correlate events across devices. Well, NTP is one of the tools that we use for that. And I hadn't really realized it until I was looking at, until I saw this story and was looking back. But the NTP folks, ntp.org, have been doing about quarterly updates to NTPD, which is the primary implementation. You know, it's the reference implementation that most of the NTP servers out there are running. And their quarterly update. Uh, just last week, included um, 11 CVEs. Uh, Nine of them were fixes for the problem. Two were mitigating uh, the issues that they'll fix in a a future release. And three of them really caught my attention as something to be concerned with if you're running NTP servers within your organization. The first one that caught my attention was what they call the reference clock impersonation vulnerability. Basically, NTPD, the way it's written, if you've got a, a hardware or a hardwired clock attached to the system, they assign a pseudo address of 127.127.0. something, something in the 127.127 slash 16 address space. NTP is primarily UDP. Those addresses can be spoofed. Mm -hmm. And basically, NTPD trusts that those reference clocks are, you know, a reliable source of time. So if you spoof something from the 127.127 space and you can get that packet through, you can basically make NTPD change its time to pretty much whatever you want. I was just going to mention, Jim, that the uh, the firewall should not allow that. 
Well, yeah, yeah, ideally you should have your egress filters. You shouldn't be letting 127 address space leave your machines, let alone your networks. Right. But you know, in, in, a, in a perfect world where we all did proper egress filtering, we wouldn't have to worry about something like that. But uh, we don't live in that perfect world, unfortunately. The second vulnerability that caught my attention was a, an authentication decryption timing attack that might allow somebody to impersonate another, you know, your upstream, your higher stratum uh, chimer. And the third one was a potential denial of service where um, it could send spoofed NACs, negative authentications, de-authentications, mm -hmm. so that it basically it would break the authentication between your server and the next higher stratum server that it was re relying on for its reference time. So those are the three that, that got my attention. Um, NTP.org updated NTPD uh, to 4.2.8p7. This all happened on April 28th. Most of the uh, most of the Linux distributions will see updates to that relatively soon. Um, some of your other devices, you know, your Cisco routers that may serve as as time servers, uh, they will have patches coming. In fact, it was actually Cisco that found these vulnerabilities and uh, and reported them to to the folks that maintain the software. So, anyway. Because time is so important for, at least for us in security, if you're running NTP servers, make sure that you get these patches installed when they become available for your, for your platform. All right, very good, thanks Jim. And you know, um, NTP has been a vector for some reflective denial of service attacks. I guess just a, one, one sort of point of emphasis. Um, when I was referring, referring to the firewalls earlier, I was referring to, at your enterprise perimeter, any packets that are allowed to ingress into that perimeter, or it could be just even a local system, should be blocking <laughs> non-routable addresses, being that 127 space, 160, or 192, not 168 space, all, all the bogons. In fact, um, uh, Kimaru, I think, has a list of bogons. Yeah. Uh, depending on how extensive you want to do that ingress filtering. And that would help to block spoof packets from getting in to your, uh, your time server. But anyway, the um, you know, NTP had been used as a vector for reflective denial of service attacks, and that kind of inspired uh, perhaps taking a look at uh, some of the trends over the last uh, couple, actually two and a half years here, associated with uh, reflective denial of service attacks. You can see a period of time here back in, this was actually in 2013, late 2013 into 2014, where uh, NTP was the primary source of reflective denial of service attacks. Actually not the source, but the, the vector that was being used by attackers reflecting off of these NTP servers. And in many cases, there were devices that had no reason to be running an NTP server, uh, but nevertheless were all too happy to respond to requests and to facilitate those attacks. That uh, got fixed up quite quickly. I was actually uh, very impressed at how that got fixed up. But uh, as time went on here, SSDP, port 1900 UDP, became a very popular one. That's this light green area here. But uh, that's been closed down predominantly as well. 
And uh, what the attackers seem to have um, reverted to is actually, you can see in the red here, growing significantly is uh, DNS-based attacks. So this is uh, using uh, DNS servers is for that reflective vector. And this orange section here is actually uh, fragmented packets. So what they're doing is taking advantage of, uh, I think it's the EDS0 function in, in DNS that allows uh, long responses uh, to DNS requests to be fragmented across many packets. So uh, those are actually a result of those two things combined. So uh, reflective DNS-based denial service attacks seem to be uh, sort of the predominant vector of choice, whereas we still see just a little bit of NTP and the smattering here, the dark green on the top. Yeah, well, and we, we, you know, we saw it almost disappear, and then it started to come back a little bit there mm -hmm. in the second half of 2015, but then it's kind of trailed off. But I, mm -hmm. the interesting thing in that chart there is still that there's still car gen down there. Yeah, character generator is still down there, yes. <laughs> Why is that still out there? Uh, oh. <laughs> we sigh, yes. So uh, let's get on to, I guess, some more positive things here. And Matt, on the Matt Kaiser Show, we are going to uh, review a book and uh, tell yeah. us about it. Yeah, so this was a heck of a book. This is the Antivirus Hackers Handbook by Yoshin Koretz and Elias Bacolony. Now, this is, sounds like an oxymoron. The Antivirus Hacker's Handbook. Well, it depends on uh, from what perspective you're taking this. Um, <laughs> this book enough. is about hacking antiviruses, okay. finding security flaws and using them to get escalated privileges because, as most people know, mm -hmm. antivirus typically runs with elevated privileges. It has to be able to see things and interact with other processes, and therefore it usually mm -hmm. gets some, some sort of elevated privileges. So, so attacking the antivirus is... is pretty good way to get those. Yeah. Could this perhaps be the result of that discussion we just had from Paul Vixie? The complexity? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And that, that is a big point that they make in this book. Yeah. So an antivirus is basically software that has to understand thousands of file formats mm -hmm. and understand not only the file formats and all the peculiarities of them, which by the way is difficult, little sidebar, Apparently, the PDF spec, they say in this book, is around, it's over 1,300 pages. Mm. And if Adobe has enough vulnerabilities in the PDF spec that they keep having to patch it, imagine how someone who's trying to emulate it just enough to get detection done, how many bugs will be in, in there? Are there mm -hmm. any missteps within their implementation? So mm. understanding file formats is tough, especially if you're trying to get away with like a best, you know, just enough to get the detection done. Emulating code is even harder. You have to understand how x86 works. Maybe you want to look at ARM malware. Maybe you want to look at MIPS, all within your one your antivirus. And those specs are huge, thick books. I've seen like the guide to x86, and it is a big book. Mm -hmm. So having software that tries to do all these things at once, you're going to have bugs because of the complexity involved. Mm -hmm. um, and some of these plug-in, and you've got a plug-in arch uh, architecture as well. Um, some of the plugins have not been updated since the last time this malware was seen, and because antivirus tends to hold on to these things because you still need to detect things from 10, 20 years ago, mm -hmm. you will find plugins that were written once to detect a family of malware that no longer exists, and the code hasn't been maintained since then, and things have changed. Mm -hmm. New techniques for exploitation have come out. Basically, this is a wide field and a lot of possible exploits here. Mm -hmm. so, I, I think one of the additional tricks associated with antivirus or challenges is that 
it's really kind of digging a hole under those abstractions that we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. That is, it's trying to take um, and, and basically get underneath these upper layer abstractions and say, you know what, we know that there are flaws in here. Which ones can I guess or can catch underneath that are being exploited or, or taken advantage of? Yeah. So it's a it's a really tricky proposition. On top of that, you know, in a typical threat analysis environment, we were talking about this earlier. You try to build that environment somewhat autonomous to the rest of the environment, so that you can be very agile, adjust it very quickly to deal with the threats that are involved, mm -hmm. and not have a derogatory effect on the operation of other things. Mm -hmm. Whereas antivirus has the challenge of it has to actually be in the thing that you're trying to protect, and balancing that agility with, with basically n the lack of flaws. <laughs> So, so there's some very good, very good points from, about that in this book yeah. is that, uh, and I think it might have been a quote from Frack. There was an article, I think it was from Frack, that if your code is running in the same memory space as malware, if your antivirus is running there, it's going to lose. Mm -hmm. So you need to find ways of better separating it, you know, running it, even with those higher privileges. But that's great because then the antivirus can't tamper with your memory, but at the same time, make sure there's nothing that allows it to be used as a vector to get into that protected space. Mm -hmm. Or maybe run it in a sandbox, which apparently not that many antiviruses do because they don't, for whatever reason, they're not considering themselves the target of an attack. They're there to prevent other attacks. They're not mm -hmm. there to protect themselves necessarily. So there's a lot of really great stuff in this book. Uh, if you ever wanted to know how antivirus works, it will walk you through the different types of modules that are made, how plugin architectures work, how emulation occurs, and then they also give you basically a platform for finding your own bugs, which is generic not just to antivirus, but to finding software flaws in general. You know, interesting ways of, of instrumenting code, of porting or taking like a DLL that exists and then writing your own interface so you can call calls within that hmm. and, and tinker with that. There's software called Multi-AV that I think one of the authors wrote that allows you to create your own virus total-like system for taking a sample and running it against X number of antiviruses. Of course, their, their take on that is once you've done that, you go and you tweak your sample and you run it against the antiviruses, and then you tweak your sample and you run it until they don't get detected. Mm -hmm. So it's both how do you exploit antiviruses and how do you bypass antivirus detection. So this, so far of all the books I've reviewed, this was the one that I had to take the most notes on, which I think is a good thing because yeah. it is chock full of stuff to learn. Um, very good. I will say the last part of the book is also very important, and that is understanding, it, you know, this, because some of this stuff is scary. Some of the stuff you have to worry about, is this going to happen to me or if you're an mm -hmm. antivirus company, is this really something that I should have to worry about? I think if you're an AV company, yes. Mm -hmm. I think if you're a home user, probably not. The amount of resources you'd have to dedicate to finding a bug is still above the, the bar for most low-level hacking groups. Mm -hmm. I think if you're a government or a large company, you should be looking into the stuff in this book to understand it because the antivirus that you've got is probably deployed to upwards of several thousand systems, it is then a target. Mm -hmm. It's valuable to someone at that point to say, this is my way in. Yeah. You know, years ago, and this is probably going back uh, eight or 10 years at this point, there were actually a couple of worms that were targeting antivirus and able to um, basically bought machines based on that, 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 uh, that was almost kind of a backdoor mm -hmm. into uh, antivirus. It was, I think, an administrative access that um, had an authentication flaw, so an authentication uh, bypass flaw. 
So uh, there is some actual practical experience with these kinds of things. It's not as if it's uh, just a theoretical thing that dates Absolutely. back some time. And, um, you know, I think uh, to your point that uh, folks operating an enterprise should be considering that, that is antivirus is a layer of security, but you really need to be considering the layers of security that help protect your, your protection in a sense. And if you have a, a contract with an antivirus company, you should be at least be asking some of the questions that are raised at the end of this book. Mm -hmm. How are you d protecting the antivirus as it runs? You know, do you have any sort of debug interfaces that are still there? Mm -hmm. How do your updates work? And that's one of the things that was scary for me, because I think we've talked about vulnerable update systems for a while across a whole bunch of different... Exactly. <laughs> if your update mechanism is vulnerable and someone can intercept it, say you're using HTTP and you're not signing your packages, Whatever you put in there may get run mm -hmm. at elevated credentials that antivirus has. Right. Game over. <laughs> um, I would also recommend, outside of this book, that if you want the short version of some of the things that are possible, there's a good series of talks I think Black Hills Information Security put out, uh, Sacred Cash Cow Tipping. Mm -hmm. If you can search for that and find some of those videos online, you will see they've got some practical versions of the same kinds of attacks that are in here right, for somebody who doesn't want to read the book. But I say, you should really read the book. <laughs> Well, you do a good job um, making the case for it, and so I uh, really appreciate that. Okay, so let's take a look at the, the uh, internet weather for the last week or so here, and um, at the top of the list, we're looking at the 10 top most probed ports, uh, tw port 23 at the top of the list, followed by port 22, SSH, 1433, that's uh, Microsoft SQL database. We're going to take a little closer look at the first few of those because they are generally of interest. And uh, we had some, uh, a little bit of growth in activity on port 3389. We'll take a little closer look at that one as well. But we have 445, 443, 53 UDP, 25 TCP, and uh, 143 TCP and 1911 TCP. Some of these are actually white hatters, you know, researchers that are checking to uh, see how much exposure there is uh, for some of these devices. So uh, some of these others aren't. <laughs> Uh, and then looking at the top 10 most sources doing the probing, again, port 23 at the top of the list, followed by 53.413. We'll take a look at those, as I said, followed by 445 TCP, 6881. Uh, it's actually a BitTorrent network that's kind of popped up, so we'll take a little closer look at that. And then uh, 4028 TCP, we'll take a little closer look at that one as well, because that is up a few slots. So first, taking a look at port 23 TCP, and we're both showing on the top part here the number of probes. And uh, the bottom part here is showing the number of sources conducting that probing. No significant changes over the last week or actually over the last, uh, we're looking at 180 days of activity here. So it seems relatively stable. You know, we have our ups and downs associated with this, but it's uh, not as if it's uh, increasing significantly or even decreasing for that matter. So it's a relatively uh, stable situation, but we still have on the order of uh, in a given hour, maybe 80 or 90,000 unique sources that are scanning here. So it indicates a significant botnet activity that's taking place. And over the course of the day, we see on the order of about 300 or so unique sources here. So uh, it's um, you know not as if we're seeing all of it at any particular one time. It, it progresses through the, the day or accumulates. Looking at port 22 TCP, that's SSH, over the last 30 days here, no significant changes in the activity, although we did see, uh, when was this? This was about April 24th through April 27th, a, a jump or a bump in the number of sources that were doing that scanning activity. It jumped, you know, we, in this case, we're looking at 
on the order of hundreds as opposed to the previous where we're looking at tens of thousands. And this bumped up on the order of about 500 or so sources and then uh, basically declined over time. So a fairly clear indication of a botnet, but not a really sizable botnet performing that activity. Next item here is uh, scan probes on port 1433 TCP, that's Microsoft SQL database. And this one is actually a fairly prominent change in activity. We went from on the order of about, you know, I would say 100 or so sources, and that jumped up to on the order of about uh, 1,500 sources. So, uh, and that seems to be remaining stable over the last week or so. Last, last several days, yeah, almost about a week now. You can see there's a corresponding, not as significant, but a corresponding increase in the number of probes that we're seeing on that port as well. So make sure those SQL, Microsoft SQL, any SQL database, any database for that matter, are uh, uh, properly protected from the internet. Uh, if you have to expose it to the internet, make sure you've defined specifically what addresses should be able to access that, uh, that database. And then uh, next item here, scan probes on port 3389 TCP, that's remote desktop protocol. We're looking at the last six months here. And what I did in this particular case is included an averaging algorithm so that it would flatten out the, uh, the curve a little bit. And basically what we're seeing is, uh, you know, roughly a 20% increase in activity over the last six months. This probably isn't the highest level that we've seen it, you know, ever, or even over the perhaps last year but it does present itself as a sort of an increasing interest in the activity or you know, looking for exposed remote desktop protocol. You know, we've seen a lot of cases in the past where even like um, you know, small businesses had their register computers exposed to the internet with the remote desktop protocol. Not really a good idea, but uh, you know, for some of these smaller businesses that are uh, managing or have some third party managing their devices, uh, that apparently is a, a practice that's in, that's in use. So you want to pay attention, even if you, particularly if you have a, a small business and uh, a retail mechanism that your computers are protected from, uh, from this type of, uh, basically it's more than likely a brute force password guessing attack. Looking at the last six months or so, this 180 days, just sort of six months, scan sources on port 53413 Actually, that says TCP, it should be UDP. Uh, this is actually the NetIS home router backdoor. It's really just a packet that injects some script uh, onto the device. It's a home router. That's a backdoor that allows basically uh, scripting to be injected. I'm being a little redundant here. Uh, but looking over the last six months, uh, we're not, you know, over the last few weeks here, it's relatively stable. I think basically what these attackers are doing is uh, maintaining their botnet and uh, using some portion for recruiting activities and then perhaps using uh, some other portion of the botnet for other purposes. I'm going to say it's most likely nefarious purposes, denial of service attacks, or perhaps even uh, uh, you know, access into uh, the networks that these are, devices are presumably protecting. Um, you know, we've typically looked at the geographic mapping of these. These devices are a lot more popular in Asia, uh, even Europe and um, you know, India and China. Europe much more so than in the United States. So I wouldn't consider this to be a significant threat, but these devices are in fact available in the United States for purchase and, and use. Next item here is uh, what's measured in our analysis is scanned sources on port 6881 UDP. This is associated with BitTorrent and uh, we're looking at the last 60 days of activity here. What we see is a significant jump, you know, basically from around, uh, you know, a couple of hundred sources that are on this port 
and then uh, jumping right up to in the order of uh, peaking out at about 6,000 sources here. We're not really sure what this is. I mean, it's some sort of file sharing activity and uh, it uh, happened all of a sudden. We had some speculation that might be some you know, really popular TV programming that's being shared around or something along those lines, right? It starts with a G and uh, ends with an aim of thrones. Yeah, that's a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> that's a possibility. Uh, we have nothing to substantiate that. It's just a guess. So and then uh, last but not least here, scan sources on port 4028 TCP. Now this was um, loosely associated with the uh, Hydra botnet. There was actually a, uh, I think a SANS post uh, on this topic. I have not been able to substantiate that. We're looking at the last 90 days of activity here. And the reason I really wanted to bring this up again, you know, we've uh, covered this over the last few weeks, but it's kind of interesting where we have a couple of events over the last couple of weeks here where the activity has tailed off and then reintroduced itself or revived itself and then tailed off again and then revived itself. That sort of sawtooth behavior is a, kind of a telltale sign of botnets where perhaps they lost their command and control for a period of time, the devices completed their task and then just sort of sat there idle saying, you know, what am I supposed to do? And then the uh, botnet operator, the command and control had to resume that activity in order to um, get those devices working again. So that's one possibility here. Now, taking a look at some other activity that we had found, it did seem in one of our analysis activities to be associated with a particular type of a DSL modem. And it turns out that in this particular type of DSL modem on the cover of the manual, they uh, show the uh, default user name and password that uh, could be used to access those. We don't know if that's really directly associated with this activity or it's not, or if it's even that Hydra botnet. So there, there's a couple of possibilities that are here. Uh, if you have information on it, please feel free to share it with us. Uh, we would enjoy uh, hearing from you in email and uh, perhaps there are other collaborations that we could do together. Just taking a look at the uh, geographic mapping of this activity, it's changed slightly. I think previously we had been showing uh, activity predominantly in Iran, which was the highest density, some in Cambodia, some in the Philippines, and actually some in Brazil as well. Now what we're seeing in the bottom right here of this uh, geographic map, a little more density in Europe. It looks like perhaps in Spain it's, it's uh, a little denser, a little less in Iran. We're seeing still the activity in the Philippines and Cambodia, but we're also seeing a little heavier density in China. And then throughout South America, it seems like there's more activity, including in Brazil. So it's about the same in the United States, very sparse in the United States. So interesting geographic distribution here, not the typical one that we tend to see associated with um, botnet activity like this. And again, one that uh, we don't have a real clear explanation for. It could be that uh, those types of devices are being used in specific parts of the world. So that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, maybe you have some information about what's going on with that 4028. Uh, there's not a lot of information available out there, but it's definitely there. Please email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. And um, you can find the ATT Threat Track program on the ATT Tech Channel. It's on YouTube as well as an audio podcast on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. So I'd like to thank you, Jim, online for joining us today. Thank you, Manny. Thank you, Matt, for joining us on the Matt Kaiser Show. I'm glad you guys could join <laughs> me on the Matt Kaiser Show. <laughs> I'm Brian Ruxford. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe.
views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.